Welcome to FYI, the four-year innovation podcast. This show offers an intellectual discussion on technologically enabled disruption, because investing in innovation starts with understanding it. To learn more, visit arc-invest.com. Arc Invest is a registered investment advisor focused on investing in disruptive innovation. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. It does not constitute either explicitly or implicitly any provision of services or products by Arc. All statements made regarding companies or securities are strictly beliefs and points of view held by Arc or podcast guests and are not endorsements or recommendations by Arc to buy, sell, or hold any security. Clients of ARK Investment Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Welcome to FYI, ARK's weekly podcast on innovation and technology investing. This week on the show, we have Professor Yaakov Nachmias. Professor Nachmias is an Israeli bioengineer and innovator whose technology breakthroughs range from the first 3D printed human cells to human on chip technologies and cost effective manufacturing of cultured meat. He was recruited by Hebrew University in 2010 to found and direct the Center of Bioengineering. In 2017, he became the first scientist outside of Britain to win the Rose Trees Trust Interdisciplinary Prize for his pioneering work on liver-on-chip technology. This is a two-part podcast. In the first part, we'll talk about his company Tissue Dynamics that is developing a groundbreaking human-on-chip instrument for drug development. How did you get involved in drug discovery? What is your angle into that? So I'm an engineer, right? And in my mind, when I see things, engineers are the type of people that when they see something is not working properly, will start thinking about, okay, how do I fix it? How do I make it work right? And this is my entire angle on, this is how I actually came into the field. You know, seeing what people are actually doing in industry and what is good about it, what is wrong about it, and how do we fix it? What is the work you actually do in drug discovery? So my lab developed tools. And we are developing tools that are more predictive than animal models and also allow people that are interested in developing drugs, whether they are you know, basic researchers, whether they are clinicians or pharmaceutical companies or cosmetic companies are interested in developing an active compound, we give them the tools to make sure that their compound is relevant in humans. Just that, you know, most of the field right now is relying a lot on small animal studies that are, they don't, nothing really translates to humans. That's the biggest problem that they have. Could you tell us the founding story of Tissue Dynamics, one of the two companies you helped co-found? Medical research really started with animal studies. It's, it's a cornerstone of everything that we're doing, right? We wouldn't have discovered insulin if, if somebody didn't do experiments in, in dogs, right? There's a lot of things that we learned about in physiology from experiments in mice, a lot of things that we learned about genetics, a lot of things that we learned about metabolism. All of that came from animal experiments. They've been an essential tool. But as, as our knowledge base grew wider and wider, we started you know, using those tools to try to predict something in humans. It turns out that a lot of the things that we find in mice don't really translate. And there's many reasons for that. One is that mice have very different genetics from humans, very different metabolism from humans. And then finally, very different physiology from humans. So 
things like finding a cure for breast cancer in mice, which you know people have been doing for the last decades, you know, finding molecules that work extremely well on breast cancer in mice don't really translate in, in humans. Things like, you know, uh, testing drugs in small animal models and finding whether they're toxic or not toxic, again, don't translate to humans. You know, there are drugs like talodomide that are not toxic at all in rodents and, are, and cause horrible birth defects in humans and vice versa. You know, drugs that we use every day, like aspirin, that we have decades of good experience with, and they're very safe in humans, cause horrible developmental toxicity in rodents. So it doesn't translate. And there's been, in recent years, there's been, you know, this trend from the science world saying, well, you know, when you publish something, just make sure that you say, in mice, you know, there's a hashtag, in mice. But also from industry, there's been an understanding that we need to break through out of that model. You know, we can't keep on doing all the experiments on mice and expecting them to translate because things have gotten out of hand. Feedling has gotten to the point where, you know, it costs $2.6 billion to develop and bring one drug to the market. That's insane. $2.6 billion. A decade ago, it was less than half of that. And it also takes 10 years. And the reason it takes so much time and costs so much money is because of so many failures we have. We test everything in animals, but then 90% of those molecules stand in, fail in clinical studies, and another 10% fail after you reach the market. So you mentioned that a decade ago, it cost half of the $2.6 billion. So what happened in that decade that has increased the price to bring a compound onto uh, the market? So it was several decades ago, and a a couple of things happened. One is that regulation became more tight, right? So many of our regulations emerged in the 70s when cases like telonamide came into play, right? When we understood that there is a lot more, we need to do a lot more safety studies or we're going to have these horrible problems. So that's one. We have a lot more regulation. That means we need to do a lot more studies and and validate everything that we're doing. But the second thing is that all of the molecules that have been easy picking, all of the low-hanging fruit, we already discovered them, right? So if it was a natural molecule that we found in, in Chinese medicine or we found from, you know, in the Middle East, what the Greek used to do or, you know, something fell on a Petri dish, you know, all those molecules we already discovered. Now we are going into the unknown. In the last decade or so, we're going into the unknown, maybe even a little bit more than that, 20 years. We are starting to generate molecules from, you know, these massive molecular libraries. You know, we can generate hundreds of thousands of molecules at a time. So it's very random. We don't really know what they're doing. You know, we're just generating different structures. So there is, it's much harder when you're not working with a natural compound that has been driven by evolution to do something very, very specific. So it's not really our fault. It's getting more expensive. The problem has gotten harder. It's kind of like in semiconductors. First, it was quite cheap to shrink the nodes. And now if you try to get from 10 to 7 to 5, every node gets harder. 
That's right. And it's also the type of molecules, right? So, you know, the molecules are becoming more complex, more hydrophobic. So they break down slower. They uh, get accumulated in different places. So the chemistry has become more complex. You know, we're searching deeper and deeper into the parameter space to find interesting new molecules. And that has led us to, you know, it's more difficult to find efficacy and to understand exactly what these molecules are doing. But let's not forget the, the fact that there is increased regulation, which is good. How do we, there are many various stages in, in finding a molecule, getting it tested and, and, and approved. Where can we have the most impact in the beginning or at the end so that we can bring the cost down and kind of shrink the time window required to find a new drug? So this is where my work has, has actually focused. Exactly where are the bottlenecks and what can we do about them, right? So if you go and ask people in, the, in pharmaceutical drug discovery, you ask them, what is your biggest problem right now? What, where is the bottleneck? They will tell you that their bottleneck is predictive models, simply because of everything I said before about small animals, right? And this is why for the last almost 50 years, there's been an effort to take human cells with human genetics and human metabolism, grow tissues out of them, so liver, heart, brain, gut, and then place them in a microfluidic environment that mimics human physiology. This field is called organon-chip, and it's not new. Where is the chip in this? The, the chip is the microfluidics. So it's essentially plastic chips that have flow inside them, and we have the flow of the blood or plasma, which behaves a little bit similar to you know, electronics. And it's also created using the same lithographic techniques we're using in micro, the traditional microchip industry. This is why we call them chips. Okay? So they're about the size of a quarter, and we can grow different human organs on them. So we have human genetics and human metabolism and human physiology, right? And I've been involved with a couple of companies, and one of the first that we licensed technology to is a company called Jurel that licensed the original technology for Mike Schuler from Cornell and is very, very active in California, you know, providing knowledge to companies. And But more recently, there's been these second-generation companies like Emulate from the WIS Institute and uh, Mimetas that is uh, here in, uh, and around New York in Washington. And they've been pushing these organs on a chip. And these organs might be, and they are, more predictive. So... Because it's human cells and human genetics and human metabolism, then when something fails there, we know it's toxic to humans. So what technological advances have you seen from the first generation to the second generation to make them more predictive? Uh, since you mentioned that organs on a chip um, has been around for quite some time now. So it, it's really a convergence of a couple of things, but the second, and we are by the way, I think that was about five years ago. You know, Tissue Dynamics, the company that I founded, uh, I would consider one of the first third-generation technologies. So the second generation essentially benefited from the fact that we have cells today that we didn't used to have 10 years ago or 15 years ago. So back in the day, it was very difficult to grow cells into human tissues because we didn't have cells from humans. We had cells from animals and we had cell lines, like cancer tumor cells, that you can play around with, but not primary cells. Today, you can go to the ATCC here in Washington or to companies like Lanza in Switzerland and buy human cells of many different types. So you can buy kidney cells, liver cells, even brain stem cells, 
you can buy gut cells, you can buy heart cells. Those have become available just in the last few years. So it became easier to integrate them into microfluidic chips, a technology that emerged about a decade ago. So there was a marriage of these two resources, and that brought to the fore this blooming of second-generation companies. So Emulate raised about $95 million. Mimetas, I think, about 25 or $30 million. It's been a very exciting field. My problem in all of this, and the reason that you know, we, we brought the, the, th- the third generation to the market is, is that I understand what industry is saying, what they're telling us that they have very slow horses and they would like faster horses, which is great. But I think what they need is a car. <laughs> and, and you know, it's a tough argument to make, right? Because people don't know how a car looks like. You know, they're used to horses. But when you see what they're doing, it doesn't seem logical, right? So what you're doing right now in drug discovery is you're screening 100,000 molecules against your model. And you don't find one drug that can cure breast cancer or, you know, inflammatory bowel disease. You find 200 molecules, right? But then you take one of those 200s, do an animal study, fail. You don't understand why you failed. You just know it failed. So you go back and you pick up another molecule. You do an animal study, pass, spend $50 million on phase one clinical study, fail. You don't understand why you failed. So you go back, take another molecule, you know, and fail, take another molecule, go to second, pass the first one, go to the second stage clinical study and fail and go back. It's a Sisyphean process. This is exactly the definition of pushing a boulder up the mountain and then having it roll back all over you the next day. So this lack of information from failure, I think, is much more problematic than than the ability to predict and I think they have to come in unison. You have to have both. So the platform that we built is a platform that essentially tracks everything in real time. We have sensors in this human tissue. So it's not only that we build human tissues, we make them, for lack of a better word, bionic, right? With sensors, optical, chemical, electrical sensors physically integrated inside. This allows us in tissue dynamics to essentially measure what is happening every minute of every hour of every day that we're culturing these cells and then look at the kinetics. And when something goes off, we know that one, something went off and two, what went off and where. And in many cases, how can we fix it? This turns the process of drug development for the first time into an iterative solution, right? So you take a molecule and if you fail, you know why you failed. So you can fix it, modify it, change it, add something else and go to the next step. And this could be a quantum leap to the way we're doing business, right? This could you know, mean that 90% of the failures in clinical styles, trials, that's what we have right now. 90% of the molecules fail. If we can reduce that to 10% failures, then we are reducing the cost by 40 to 80% of drug discovery. This is huge. This is major. How does it express what, let's say something failed and, it, and these sensors give you some kind of signal. How does that translate into you need to modify this molecule in a particular way? So the only way to explain it is to give you an example from completely another world, right? So 
today, if you drive your car on a highway and you have a flat tire, then we have a pressure sensor in the wheel, right? That will tell you you have a flat tire. If you have an oil leak, again, you have a sensor right there in the oil tank. It will tell you you have an oil leak. That's great. And it's there. We have those sensors there because we know everything that can possibly go wrong in the car. And they have. We have a lot of experience. But your dad didn't need that. When your dad drove a car, he knew something was wrong, right? His car handled differently. I knew when something was wrong, you know. So I'm betraying I'm slightly older than you. But I knew that something was wrong. My car wasn't behaving in the same way. My car fuel efficiency actually went down if I have a flat tire. It would go down even faster if I lose oil. Now, this is interesting because this monitoring behavior, all you need to do in a car is just monitor fuel efficiency. If it's a hybrid, it's even better because you know how much is coming from the brakes, how much, is com- how much energy is coming from the battery, and how much is in the engine. If you just monitor that, and look at the kinetics, you can say something is wrong and you, have a very, you can actually have a very good guess as what is wrong, right? If there's a slow decrease in efficiency, it's probably a flat tire. If it's fast, it's probably the engine, probably oil. If the efficiency goes up and then goes down, it's probably a radiator, right? Just based on that, the kinetics and the timing, you can say what is wrong and where. And the platform we built does exactly that, but in living tissues, because living tissues are an engine. They have an engine inside. They need to generate energy to survive, to actually function. So you can tell, you, you're, the telemetry tells you what, where the failure is in the organ tissue itself. Not only that, the telemetry actually tells you if there is any type of residual stress there in the system. If something is even slightly wrong, you'll see it. And this is critical because a lot of drugs, you get to a concentration that you think is safe and the cells look pristine and everything looks fine. And then when you bring it to the market, you get something called idiosyncratic toxicity. And then you have, so one out of every 20,000, 30,000 individuals have liver damage, kidney damage, heart damage. And then you have to withdraw the drug. That's actually 10 to 16% of all FDA-approved drugs have to be withdrawn within the first year because of stuff you didn't discover, not in animal study, not in a clinical study, just happened because of idiosyncratic toxicity. This is happening because of this low residual stress you didn't detect. So your cells are fine because everything is controlled. Your patients are fine because, well, you selected them very carefully in the clinical study. You didn't want to fail. But when you give it out to people, suddenly... 100,000 people are taking it. Some of them are running marathons. Some of them are couch potatoes. Some of them are drinking way too much coffee. You know, and some of them are on three different drugs. And this residual stress suddenly transfers to organ damage. We have a system that can not only detect it, but say when it happens and how to actually alleviate it. So we're starting to see a bit of a shift away from what we would call small molecule chemistry and drugs uh, now into gene therapies and cellular therapies. So what are your thoughts on that? And would something like organs on a chip uh, help discover toxicity or predict toxicity for gene therapies or cellular therapies? Right. So there's a massive shift right now toward biologicals. That's, I guess, the biggest shift, right? So everything from you know, recombinant cytokines to modulator of the immune system for cancer. A lot of biologicals are emerging. 
in essentially modulating the immune system, especially in cancer. And then right after that, we have a strong interest in cell therapy. Well, again, very particularly to cancer, taking cells out of the human body, you know, getting them to respond to cancer antigens, you know, putting the cells back together. There is some work on gene therapy, taking cells from a patient, correcting their genes and putting them back. It's not a huge effort. I think organ on chip can actually help all of them. There used to be this tactic assumption that, you know, if you're doing biologicals or if you're doing immune modulation, then you don't have the traditional organ damage that you have in, you know, with small molecules. I think you know, there's recent papers that show that that's wrong. The liver and the gut are actually immunoprivileged. And the second that you take it away and you modify the immunity of an organism, then you start seeing organ damage, even in the liver. So it has to be monitored carefully. And I think organ on chip can actually do that because the immune system of humans is very, very different from the immune system of rodents. A lot of things don't translate. So organ on chip can help essentially validate that and do that. What you need to do, though, is a lot of tissue matching. So there's a lot of immunology that needs to happen. So there's some at least a few years more of organ on chip research that needs to happen before very reliable models can be used to study human immunology. But it's there, and it's definitely right there at the cutting edge. So... Because of, you mentioned that there are a number of variables that you're collecting from organs on a chip, so including kind of where toxicity is happening, when is it happening. So that's a lot of data that you're accumulating. So as you're accumulating this data, my natural inclination is there's some sort of analysis you can do with this. Um, is there any efforts on your end, um, or do you see where we can go with the data that's being accumulated? Yeah, that's actually a major effort in our part because we certainly think that AI is the right way to go, at least machine, early stage machine learning. And before I answer that directly, I want to take a step back and say something about AI in general in biology. We have a huge problem in biology, you know, in contrast to other fields where you can collect a lot of reliable standardized data, right? A camera is a camera is a camera. You know, you, you, you make sure that you use the same camera all the time, you get the same type of information, right? In biology, different hands using the cells on slightly different plastics with slightly different growth medium, with slightly different ways of extracting DNA, and then putting it on different machines to do sequencing, suddenly, even from the same lab, two technicians using the same machine can get different results. So the amount of, there's a lot of information out there in genetics, but that information in a lot of ways is just too messy, hasn't been standardized. So it's, and when you give machine algorithms, this type of data out there in those great databases to try to create some predictors and descriptors of early disease states, well, it's junk in, junk out. In a lot of ways, it just doesn't work. You know, the signal is just so low and the noise in the system is so big that you get lost. AI, however, has been very effective in medicine when we have good standardized reliable data. For example, in pathology, right? 
So standard pathological approaches to take sections and take images. So AI is becoming very rapidly better than pathologists in detecting cancer. And the same is true for radiology because we have reliable x-rays and we can digitize them, right? They are, most cases are digitized. So AI can actually distinguish shades of gray much better than most radiologists. So when we have good, reliable, standardized data, it works great. When it's a mess, it doesn't. You know, there is this big collaboration between, uh, what was it? I think IBM Watson and and GSK, I think, that they just, they put a lot of effort, a lot of time, and, and nothing really came out of it. This is where, you know, technology like ours that integrates sensors into living tissues and standardize everything have a potential of actually doing something useful with machine learning. We create data structures that can be easily uploaded into a cloud. It takes a very small amount of space, right? Because we're measuring vectors of metabolism, essentially fuel utilization, right? In, in the cell, in the, in the organs. And those, that creates, gives us this functional matrices, which are tiny, 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 a few kilobytes each. And then we can create these massive arrays of, of drug tissue combinations and, and put them all in a cloud. And when you do that, then you can do a lot of things with it. So one thing that you can do is you can have, you know, a small pharma company, you know, use their drug on a tissue with our instrument, then probe the cloud and see that the same structure they have is closely associated with these, with these close neighbors that got the same type of data. So right away, they know that the mechanism that they are looking at is probably the same mechanism as those neighbors. And if one of those neighbors found a solution to solve it, there's a good chance that that solution, or or at least a similar solution, would work for them as well. The cool thing is that we already did that. So, you know, we have a limited database, but, you know, one of the things that we just did in tissue dynamics is we developed a new model for the kidney, and we tested cyclosporin, which is uh, the most commonly used uh, immunosuppressive therapy for tissue transplant. And we know that many of the patients that receive it get kidney damage, about 20-25%. But we still give it because, well, it's the best drug we have. So when we used it on the kidney, then suddenly we got this metabolic signature, this data structure that looked very similar to something else. And we looked around and we found what it was similar to. It was actually similar to fatty liver disease, but in the kidney. So we discovered this new mechanism, which nobody knew about before. And the second that we knew that mechanism is is new, then we could actually identify a molecule to block it and just patented a combination therapy on cyclosporin. Right? And now you have a new formulation for a drug which is off-label that you know, pharmaceutical companies can start using. So this type of technology is very useful because suddenly you see these fingerprints emerge and it becomes this association study. So everything that I can do, you know, a machine AI can probably do a lot better. There's a lot going on right now. So in healthcare and in drug development, so costs are very high right now. There's a lot of regulation, but we're now we're seeing a convergence of we're looking at AI, we're, we're talking about 
storing data in the cloud, also sensors, and we're looking at just natural biology. Where do you see drug development going in the next five to 10 years? What is the next leap that we'll be making? Ideally, what will happen is that you know, bioanalyzers, organ-on-chip type technology like we are producing in the third wave might even the playing field a little bit. Right now, the only way to develop a drug is to be a mega corporation or to be bought by a mega corporation, right? They are the only ones that can afford to do all those clinical studies and the marketing and, you know, handle the damage that comes from failure. Because, you know, drugs like troglitazone that have to be withdrawn cost them, you know, $2 billion in losses. All of this, you know, in addition to everything they invested, very few small companies can actually handle that. But I think if we can, you know, if we can bring the technology like tissue dynamics to the market, technology that can dramatically reduce the risk of drug development, suddenly you might be able to see this blooming of small companies willing to take the risk because we're evening the playing field. And when you do that, a lot of different things are possible. A lot of different things. You know, you can actually have new biologicals, new small molecules, you know, even targeting and going after orphan diseases that people are not willing to pay for, right, might become realizable because it's not going to be $2 billion to develop a drug. It might be $200 million to develop a drug. Right now, if the disease market is less than half a billion dollars, nobody's approaching it. It costs more to develop a drug than to go after an orphan disease. Are you optimistic that AI-based drug discovery, in terms of the earlier in the stage in the pipeline, just for identifying molecules, we've seen a lot of startups come out of that field. Do you think those companies have a shot at succeeding? And so that by the time the, the, the uh, I guess, the candidates approach the time of doing actual tissue tests, that they have a higher chance of success? Wow. I'll be the devil advocate and say no. And I'll tell you why. I think that right now we can generate massive libraries of extremely weird molecules, base range, very different chemistries, hundreds of thousands of them. And we are asking whether an AI or machine algorithm can predict which structure would have which function. I don't think we have enough information right now today to say this element can do this, this element can bind that. I just don't think we have enough information for that. I think you have projects like Tox21 that is trying to get this information and will slowly accumulate it over time. You know, they're running something like 20,000 molecules against every single assay known to man and approved by the... So they're trying to get this huge database in toxicology in the 21st century. And that data is emerging slowly. So in the next decade, you might have enough data on molecular interactions and effects that, that a machine algorithm might be able to do that effectively. So other than docking experiments, when you know the protein and you need to imagine what molecule would bind it better, where definitely machine learning can do a good job at it. It seems like they're focused on docking. That's right. A good that's number right. Because that's the low-hanging fruit. Other than that, you know, predicting which molecule would have which effect, I just don't see it. But solving, I don't think they have enough information. Solving docking is not good enough, is not, doesn't take us far enough? So solving docking would tell you if your molecule is likely to be effective. But it won't tell you everything else this molecule is doing. And that's usually what kills you. Now, keep in mind that what is the alternative to do machine learning on docking? The alternative to do machine learning on docking is to take a protein, 
and run the experiment and see if it docks, right? That's becoming, you know, with robotics, you know, I, we can do 1,500 molecules at a time. You know, it, becoming, it becomes easier and easier and easier. So, so the throughput screening is, is not really kind of a bottleneck there as much. In some cases, it might be a bottleneck if the protein is very expensive and it's very easy and it's very difficult to identify the docking. It's very difficult to identify the docking. In some cases, it might be exactly the opposite. You don't know exactly what you want to dock and, and to where. So what I would imagine is that probably the success story is going to be the companies that do both, both the screening and the machine algorithms. And then they'll be able to do a screen, use machine learning to improve that on the next batch of molecules and then do another screen and optimize it that way. And then they can get molecules that are very effective at doing X. But then the process becomes, okay, now what? Right? Now what? Because like I said, you get a biological model, you can throw a library on it, and we don't get one molecule that works. You get hundreds of them. Now what? That's not the bottleneck, getting those molecules. The bottleneck is moving to the clinical studies and succeeding. This is where the failures happen. In part two of this podcast, we'll delve into future meat technologies one of his startups that's been funded by Tyson Foods to focus on the cost-effective production of cultured meat. That's it for this week. You can find the full ARC team on Twitter. We'll catch you next week. ARC believes that the information presented is accurate and was obtained from sources that ARC believes to be reliable. However, ARC does not guarantee the accuracy or completeness of any information, and such information may be subject to change without notice from ARC. Historical results are not indications of future results. Certain of the statements contained in this podcast may be statements of future expectations and other forward-looking statements that are based on ARC's current views and assumptions and involve known and unknown risks and uncertainties that could cause actual results, performance, or events to differ materially from those expressed or implied in such statements.